Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Every now and then I have guest hosts on the podcast to bring new life and energy into the show itself. It makes me happy to turn over the host seat to people who love a good conversation and past guest turned friend turned guest host Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh is back in the host seat this episode. Dr. Sanchez-Walsh interviewed Dr. Felipe Hinojosa on episode 207 and also appeared as a guest on episode 176. Dr. Sanchez-Walsh's guest on this episode is Dr. Christy Nabin-Warren, and the topic of conversation is the book Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. The book is out now from the University of North Carolina Press, and I am delighted to turn this episode over to Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Hello. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. I am your guest host, Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, Professor of Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific University. And we are doing a few podcasts to highlight Latinx religion, and in particular, new books. It is the only way to get new books. Well, there is, there, you should go buy them, but you know, this is a, a much easier way for me. This one is a great one. It is a masterclass in ethnography. If it, I can call it anything, it's visceral. You can almost feel it and smell it and taste it. And you can hear uh, the killing floor, if you will. The book is Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland by my esteemed guest, Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren, who is the VO and Elizabeth Call Figge Chair of Catholic Studies and a professor in the Departments of Religious Studies and Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. Christy, welcome. And first off, tell us why you wrote this book, which started as a study, as I understand, of white and Latinx Catholics, and it became this. So how did that happen? Yeah, well, first I wanna thank you, Arlene, uh, Dr. Sanchez, for having me on. I've been really looking forward to this, and I am a big fan of your work. So it's an honor to be interviewed by you. I want you to know that. Um, thank you, thank you. No, that was not solicited. It was not solicited. Speaking truth here, capital T truth. Okay, so yeah, and so what I love about ethnography, I think any method, right? You start with the, you know, you're curious about something as a scholar, right? And I was really curious about um, rural America. I was new to the University of Iowa. It was fall 2012. And I just started driving around the state and I started just kind of checking out rural places. And at, over the first year, between 2012 and 13, it became clear to me that, you know, I was reading a lot about parish consolidations, parishes closing, and I was also reading about the, the large numbers of um, migrants and refugees into the state of Iowa as part of the secondary wave migration into Midwest from like the coastal states. And so uh, this project originally was called Corn Belt Catholicism because I have a Catholic studies position. I was new to the university and I wanted my first book that I did here at the university to really be, um, you know, to really honor the Catholics who raised money for my position, you know? And so I wanted to, uh, to really thank them through this project. And so I started conducting field work at uh, three different rural Iowa parishes and after the first two, three years, I would say I had collected quite a few interviews by then, maybe close to like 70, 75. Every single one of my interlocutors, Latino interlocutors, um, worked at Tyson in Columbus Junction, or they worked at another meatpacking plant in Ottumwa or Marshalltown, 
or, um, you know, in another Waterloo, in another city. And so I knew there was another piece to the puzzle that I was trying to put together, right? And it just so happened that I was working very closely with Father Joseph Sia, who uh, is a was the parish priest at St. Joseph the Worker in Columbus Junction. And he said, yeah, do you want to have a tour of Tyson in Columbus Junction? I said, I, I'd love to. Uh, and so he was good friends with the chaplain there and he knew the human resources manager there. And so that was my first foray into a meatpacking plant. And I realized that this was a really essential part of this had to become an essential part of the book. And so that's what I love about ethnography, right? Um, you know, you start with an idea and, uh, you know, it's a snowball method, right? You start talking to people. They tell you to talk to other people. Um, and, and not only do we talk to other people, but we go to different sites and, you know, there's been quite a few excellent books on meatpacking um, by anthropologists in recent years, but none have looked at the, you know, the intersections, uh, intersectionalities, you know, amongst and between religion, work, and migration. And so I thought, wow, um, there's something really powerful going on here, and I want to explore it. So that's how I got to the meatpacking plant because of all the stories I'd been gathering, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there's tons of stories. We'll get to those in a minute. Um, this is an example, and you say it in the book, and it's probably a little technical, but just for the listeners, uh, if you could provide a broad overview of what is called, quote unquote, lived religion in the context of what you were doing with these meatpacking plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was fortunate enough to train with um, Bob Orsi, who is one of really like the godfathers of this method, right? And the method is really about the intersectionalities of what used to be called official piety and popular piety or folk religion, right? Lived religion, um, it's, it's a disposition, I would say. Um, looking at the messiness, the interplay between like, in this case, parish life, like what goes, what goes on in Catholic parishes and what goes on in other places that we might not always think as qualitatively religious. In this case, meatpacking plants. Um, and so my approach was to go to the places where my interlocutors lived and worked and prayed because when they go to church and when they go home and when they go to work, they don't turn off religion. Religion is always there. And so I was really interested in understanding how does their religion and their, you know, their, their theological outlooks, their, you know, dispos dispositions, how does that work for them in the meatpacking plants? Really, really dangerous places where there's a high risk of injury. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of awful, as you know, from reading the book. It's, it's a gruesome job. How does it work for them? Do, do they just shut it off? Do they, and, and what I found was that many of my interlocutors, um, whether they're Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, Muslim, um, or Protestant, uh, religion comes very much into play for them when they're at work. And also what I really wanted to want, well, what I discovered, it wasn't something I thought I would find, was that at both meatpacking plants um, where I conducted research, as you know, Iowa Premium Beef and Tama, which is a smaller plant, um, about 1,000 animals are killed, are slaughtered there a day. And then Tyson hog processing in Columbus Junction, um, 10,000 hogs are slaughtered there a day. And that's actually considered a smaller plant, if you can imagine that. There's some amazing. That's amazing. 30, yeah. And so what became clear to me was that not only the line, not only were the line workers invoking religion and how they were talking about work and what work meant to them and how religion helped them cope with work, but but the but the CEOs and CFOs of these corporations were were inculcating what I call a religious lexicon in the workplace, you know, calling their workers family and yeah. talking about being good stewards. And so it, it was a fascinating place that I found meatpacking plants to explore um, lived religion. It's it's amazing. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. That's really what I'm talking about here. That's why when I I saw it advertised somewhere, uh, I was trying to do this series for the podcast. And I said, I need to read this, you know, and as you know, we're super busy, right? We have a hundred other things going on, but uh, uh, I just, even before we get really into the meat, <laughs> no, no joke, <laughs> of this book, seriously, it's, uh, I've never just, I've never seen these put together. There's so many interesting juxtapositions, if you will, 
Well, right. there are um, the juxtapositions of your chapters. It's it's I don't know if you did it or not in purpose, but it kind of reels you in. It starts with white Catholics in rural Iowa and you go, oh, this is kind of I mean, I just see corn and, and and fields and I'm just kind of sucked into the uh, the milieu, you know, this Midwestern because I've driven through that. I've been through there, you know, and it's like, oh, and then you get to these plants, <laughs> you know, um, uh, so you, you you do these chapters one at a time, you know, white Catholics, meatpacking plant, more white Catholics, more meatpacking plants, these refugee lives. Why did you choose to do it this way? Why did you choose to put these chapters in in this order? Gosh, Arlene, that is such a great question. And it's something that um, I usually teach a grad seminar every year here at Iowa. And I'm really I've become a lot more intentional talking about the research and writing process with my students. So when we read a book a week, we spend around at least a third of the time in class talking about what it takes to do research. And then we talk about developing their own voice as an author. Like once you're done gathering data, A, how do you know when to stop gathering data? And then B, like, how do you organize it? And yeah, I... I went into this again, thinking that it was going to be uh, sort of these in-depth snapshots, if you will, of particular parishes, which became part of the story, as you know, mm-hmm. what I, what I think I ended up, um, so this was a first book. So this is the third ethnography I've done. This was the first book that I think I didn't have a clear plan when I started it. I just sort of jumped in just jumped in, right? It was like a cannonball. I just cannonballed right into it. And I didn't really know where I was going, but I just jumped in, you know, and that's the best. Um, Isn't that, that was the best? best. Yeah. And it's, I it's risk, right? I mean, there's risk. part of a thing of like, there's, uh, because let's just be honest, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, we got to do that again. Right. And we're, you know, we, we kind of are drawn uh, to the story, right? Kind of like a journalistic thing, a journalistic <laughs> risk type thing. And then we just, Right, and it grabs you, and you're going, "Oh, this is it!" Right, and so I'm sure when you found this, when you, when it, when it, kind of the light bulb goes on, you were like, "This is it." You're so right. I think this was this was the first book that I was researching, and and this was well before COVID hit, and the United and America and the world knew about like on a broad level the plight of meatpacking plant workers. So all the field work for this book was done before COVID hit, right? But I knew I had this gut. I always tell my students, if you have a gut feeling that this is a story, go with that gut. And I have learned as an ethnographer that I just can't even tell you. I had tingling sensations. I'm like, this is such a story. Nobody knows that there are these hidden, these meatpacking plants are in these, you know, re, you know, remote rural areas, much like the CAFOs. So as I, you know, make a point in the book, the workers like the animals that they're caring for and slaughtering and packaging are fungible commodities and they're hidden. They're hidden from rest of society. And so I was, I felt very privileged to have entree into this world. And so as I was thinking about how to introduce the precarity of the refugees, um, you know, migration experiences, you know, coming to a place like Iowa, my God, Iowa in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, where they might have one relative, right? This is the amazing thing that I, I'm just so astounded by the refugees that I, I met, Arlene. So like I've met every refugee I met pretty much, you know, whether they landed in New York or Atlanta or California, Arizona, they might've known like one or two people in Iowa, one person, and they somehow find their way to Iowa or Nebraska or Illinois. And they find that person who has a job for them. So there's this incredible networking that goes on. And so I was, as I was thinking about how to like tell the story, I thought, okay, um, I thought I would, I I wanted to start each chapter with a vignette, a story. Um, I wanted, as you know, uh, from reading the book, I, I want to, the stories are a really powerful part of the book. And so I start with Rosa's story, journeying from Mexico to join her husband in Iowa with her infant daughter, Kathy. And then the second chapter is um, about homemaking from an Irish German Catholic woman who's in her 90s now, Corinne Hargrafen. And I flip flop with with white Catholics, um, Latino Catholics, Mm -hmm. African um, Pentecostals, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mm -hmm. because I want to show that each of these individuals are part of this broader refugee networking. Right. And I'm hoping that the reader will when he she they are done will be like, wow, you know, those journeys 
you know, that the Irish German Catholics had in the late 19th, early 20th century, while they weren't the same as more recent refugees, wow, the poverty, the hard scrabble lives, you know, the outhouse, barely scraping enough um, money together for their kids to have new shoes. There were so many, um, as I was coding all of the interviews, like finding common themes, it's like intense poverty, right? Um, yeah. Relying yeah. on networks, relying on mutual aid societies. Right. That was part and parcel of all the stories. And mm-hmm. faith was at the center for almost all of my interlocutors, you know, whether it was yeah. Catholic, Protestant, or, or you know, Islam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's you, you make some astounding claims here only because I think we all have this, not we, maybe I do, because I'm an urban elite, okay? <laughs> right okay. here sitting in LA. But, uh, and towards the end of the book, we'll get, we'll start at the beginning and go to the end. We'll just move, jump all over the place. But that religion, it's newfound face, it's new, it kind of the new brand is in the Midwest, right? Yeah. That, that this demography that's changing the, and you call them refugees intentionally. Let's put that out there first. It's either de jour or de facto, but you kind of stay away from all of the, the other language that uh, criminalizes these people, uh, which I think is fantastic, quite frankly. And, uh, but it seems that at least in rural Iowa, demography is destiny, you know, and I know there's a big debate about that, but in churches, in these meatpacking plants, it adds, I would say to the anxiety of white Iowans that you found, how can scholarship like this help that anxiety? Can it help it? Did you write it intentionally with that in mind that you're trying to help maybe soothe uh, the restless souls of folks who are tired of their churches closing and tired of seeing the way things used to be not happen? And, And I wonder if they even wrestle with kind of the deeper meaning of their anxiety. What do you think? That's such a great question, Arlene. You know, I'm going to give a shout out to our friend and colleague, Felipe Hinojosa here. Felipe was one of the outside reviewers. He, you know, he outed himself. He said, I could, you know, divulge. He really picked up on the thread of that I was getting across, but I wasn't being intentional enough about it. So he really encouraged me to play it, but no one feels completely at home in these rural places. Whites don't feel completely at home. Latinos, and African refugees. No one feels quite at home and everyone's really trying to do this dance of trying to accept, trying to welcome, but also being really nervous. And I I really tried to embrace that more because I think he's absolutely right. He was such a great reader. I I would say yes. I mean, I, I, uh, yes, that I wrote this in part for my white interlocutors um, to, to try to, I mean, to have a bit more empathy and to also see their own journeys and experiences in the more relative newcomers, right? Because these men and women, um, you know, in their 70s, 80s, and 90s had very similar experiences as these these Latinos in like St. Joseph the Worker in Columbus Junction. And so um, indeed, I hope that um, when they read the book, because they are reading it, I think now, that they will, that they will you know, and I really try not to demonize them. I mean, I think one of the one of the missions of the book was to really um, push back against the tropes of of Midwestern places like Iowa being just fly over. You can't wait to get over to the next place, and you can't wait to get over these places because they're they're red, they're Trumpy, they're hateful, they're racist. And I and I don't dismiss those claims at all. I just try to say it's more complicated. And I and I, I have to say I was nervous for the book to come out, Arlene, because. I try to I try to craft a nuanced argument, and I think that a lot of scholarship, a lot of folks right now, don't really want nuances. They want this is right or this is wrong, and you know they're wrong, they're racist. But I'm trying to say yes, that's racist. But also, you know, I see these white guys who voted for Trump and who, you know, go shooting every week, and I see them promoting Latinas in the workplace. So how do we make sense of that, right? And so I try to I try to show that we're all inconsistent. And we're all really complicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that the reader will sit with that. I hope when the, the reader will come away thinking, huh, okay, yeah, I see that. Um, not to, and I have that phrase, the sticky wicket of whiteness, you know? Yeah, and that was great. I had, I had I'm to going to quote that. I'm going to quote yeah. that over and over again. That was great. I mean, and as a white Midwestern woman, I, I mean, I come from a working class family, but I'm white. And I was very aware of my whiteness when I was in these packing plants and these rural parishes, right? I was very aware of it when I was having coffee 
and coffee cake as you oh the, the if you ever want to come out here Arlene we have the best coffee cakes here and pyrex. Me. I'm ready ready everything to go. is in a pyrex you know <laughs> and so I I think I, I finally shed like the 15 pounds I gained from the field work but so I I was like chatting with the, the white ladies and then one of my friends my Latina friends came downstairs before the Spanish language mass and we were I just switched over in Spanish we were chatting it got deadly silent silent and my white lady friends like looked at me like I had sprouted three more heads and I, you know, they thought I was talking about them. And I was like, oh, that was my friend. You know, do you don't. And they didn't like even really know her. And I'm like, hmm. so, I mean, these are divided places and these are contested spaces. And so I think, you know, a lot of scholars are writing about um, what does a shared parish look like? What does an integrated parish look like? And I mean, it's a hard process and there's a long way to go in these places. That's one of the messages I wanted to get across too. You know, maybe uh, I, I get out there, you come out here, we have a drink and we share like ethnography stories, yeah. right? That's a different podcast altogether, right? Cause it's like, yes. how many times are you kicked out of places, right? Like two, right? How many times are you threatened with lawsuits? Maybe one, right? I mean, it's, this is tough work. This is tough work, right? I mean, I'm not saying you were, I'm, I'm yeah. talking about myself. <laughs> um, this is tough and, and you're exactly right. I, I felt that and uh, you know, great sympathy and really wanted to complexify and not demonize um, rural whites, you know, because we, we do have this impression, mm -hmm. right? Uh, of what they are and what they should be. And, and you're kind of trying to break those molds. You, you try to help us see a much more complicated side of people, yeah. right? And but you know we're in an era where complexity is is so risky because it ruins the established narratives that people are very comfortable with right now, yes. right? Which is either with us or you're against us. It's pretty that it's that simple, yes. right? And so this kind of work right now is tough. It's very yeah, very tough. It's... I just want to thank you for that. So let's talk about this chapter, which just blew my mind: the work of God and hogs. Lovely yeah. title. Lovely title. Okay. Now there are obvious uh, signs, if you will, of religion. There's chaplains. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the less obvious signs that you found for how religion is helping these workers, Latinos, mm -hmm. uh, Africans, Asians, deal with the, you know, there's really no other way to put it. And I'm a mediator. Let me be self-reflexive here. I'm a mediator. I read your book, I read other books, I've read Jonathan Safran's book on eating meat or eating animals, it's called. Yeah, um, my daughter's a vegetarian, uh, other people that I know, vegetarians, vegans. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about this before we went on the air. Yes. Um, just, I think I'm rooted culturally into meat eating. Yes. And probably for my health, for everything, it should be better for the environment, it'd be better, but I, I don't stop. Right. I don't have bacon every day, but I, it's hard for me to stop to give it up. Right. Yes. So tell me about this chapter. First of all, let me remind the listeners that we are having a wonderful chat uh, with Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren. And the book is called Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. So the work of God and hogs. Tell us about religion lived religion in this, what can be best described as this awful workplace. Yeah, yeah, it is an awful workplace. As Father Joseph Sia described it, that horrible, horrible plant. So let me just set the scene for readers if you haven't read it. I would suggest that you don't eat meat maybe right before you read this <laughs> chapter. You know, you might want to get sick, but you pull up, you pull up to the Tyson plant and you open your door and I almost vomited outside. It was the most disgusting smell. And I had to learn how to breathe through my mouth. And, um, you know, we, you know, I actually, this was before COVID. I actually had to wear a mask in the plant, which it was actually, that actually helped because so this you pull up and it smells like, unlike any other smell you've. And so it's incredibly, to use like sort of like classical religious studies language, it's incredibly profane, right? Mm -hmm. And when you go in and I, I was able to see, you know, the intake of the animals to the final slaughter, to the slaughter, to the packaging, to where the packages go, you know, you smell burnt hair from the animals, the eyeballs rolling down the floor. Um, 
the sows like hitting my body. And uh, most of my notebooks have like stains on them, you know, from the various misters and splatter. And so, wow, wow. these are incredibly bloody and Mm. gross places. Mm -hmm. And so that's the scene. So how can, can religion exist in such a bloody, violent place with, you hear the wizard saws, which are the little trimming saws. They kind of look like those lighters, like those long big lighters that you like candles and fire. Yeah. Yeah. Like a little like razor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you see the huge machinery, you see the slaughter where the animals are cut down in half vertically. And so one of the ways that religion lives in these places is, uh, is in the materiality. And as Arlene, you pointed out earlier, I, I'm very intentional in my books um, to not foreground theory. Like those of you who know me, uh, you know my training, you know I've been trained in theory, you know, but um, it's really important for me to center my interlocutors as capable of creating their own theory. And so um, if there's theory, um, I might mention people here and there. Mostly I mentioned secondary sources, but the theory is, is in the end notes. That's where you can get that. But so I think it really, so there's a new theoretical apparatus, like the new materialisms, right? Um, and I know of that. And so if you, if you, if you read the book, you'll know that that's informed it, you know, but right, right. Um, so many of the Catholics, the Latino Catholics, um, had, wore rosaries or scapulars underneath their clothing as a protection, like, like an armor to yep. protect yep. them. Um, they would pray silent prayers or rosary, our father or rosaries, like in a meditative stance throughout their line work. Right. And so there was an oral component for many of the workers I talked to, mm-hmm. there was a, like a, literally a material component where they had religion on their bodies. Yep. Um, Uh, some of the interlocutors that I quote in the book talked about how they, they prayed to God to keep them safe because they wanted to make it home to their families. Um, you know, so religion was on the minds of the vast majority of Latinos I talked with, um, and most of whom are, are Catholic Mm -hmm. religion is also at work. Um, there's a corporate linguistic of faith that I really explore. And in this particular chapter, I became good friends with Joe Blay, who's Ghanaian American. And he um, is a, he's the chaplain there. And I was so, I, I had read Emma Green had, uh, the journalist Emma Green had written a really great piece on workplace chaplaincy. It was in the New Yorker Atlantic. I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I thought, oh my God. And then that was right about the time I was doing work at Tyson. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating that there's a, there's a chaplain in every single Tyson plant, no matter where it is in the world. Amazing. this intentional yeah. Christian evangelization going on in this plant. So these chaplains are like part-time medics, or they like shuttle folks to the hospital. They are counselors. They're also working for the man, if you will. So the, uh, you know, Joe will sure, have these sure, messages sure. saying, remember you're working, work hard so you can make money for your families. So there's like the panopticon going on there, yeah, right? Yeah, right. language, but, and so, um, it's fascinating. It's disturbing. It's, um, I just think, you know, there's a lot of scholarship now on faith at work. So like Elaine Howard Eklund, she and her crew are doing great work at Rice. Um, Nicole Kirk's work is more historically contextualized with Wanamaker's Temple. So there's a lot of religious studies folks and sociologists doing faith at work now. And so those, their scholarship was really informative to me as I was like, oh my God, meat packing plants and faith. And I remember the good folks at Louisville Institute. I had one of those sabbatical grants. Uh-huh. When I started to do the meat packing, they're like, wait, 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 is this religion? I thought, you know, and so I know it folks do a double take. And so it oh, yeah. yeah, it doesn't naturally go with what we think of as like a religious space or possibilities for religion. No, exactly. And, and what is really, really so fantastic about it is that it's not forced. I mean, you and I have read enough about enough scholarship throughout this field to know when when people just try to jam things together and it yeah. just it doesn't naturally flow because Amen. it's like they don't know where to put things you have all these notes right you have all these notebooks and interviews like oh, i really need to use this because it's too good and then you just try to artificially make it work and it just doesn't it doesn't enter the flow it doesn't enter the overall narrative of what you're trying to do but actually this works which is amazing because after that you move into this this I mean, the descriptions are horrifying, yeah. right? They really are. I, I, I could not do what you did. Okay, so <laughs> kudos to you, honestly. Right. I mean, I've, 
I've talked with people who have had near-death experiences, who have come back from, from drug overdoses, who've been prostitutes, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And their lives are horrifying, prisoners, horrifying. But this, the, the slaughter and the suffering yeah. seems so, and also just the fear, right? Yeah. That there, there seems to, that's what I got. There's just like an it on the line. Yes. And how everything needs to be precise. Yes. Because you could die. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like there's something about that danger that obviously brings you so close to yes. faith. Right. That's, faith. That's, and I use that word differently than religion, obviously, because these are folks who self profess, right? Yeah. That they are Catholic, they are uh, mm -hmm. Protestant. So they're, they've already told us that they, faith helps them somehow. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yes. So there's so many stories. Uh, your discussion of how the pork industry helps define Latino life at this plant through work, through food, through religion. What is what's going on there in terms of? Mm -hmm. I mean, it pork. What puerco, right? It 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 feeds their families. It feed, it helps. Hopefully, none of these workers that you interviewed want their kids to do this, right? right. They want them to go to to get yes. better jobs. They want them to go to college. They want them to enter the ladder of success, if you will, yes. right? Whatever yes. that ladder happens to be, <laughs> okay? Yes. But, you yes. know, religion and, and faith and food, I mean, talk a little about that. What's, and even in your white Catholic uh, interviewees, right? The, the, the coffee cake and, and the sitting down. And I mean, there's a lot of scholarship on that, I'm sure, as you know. Did you, yeah. did you think about that when you were writing it? I mean, what the, the Absolutely. intermingling of religion and food and how all this works and what you're doing? Absolutely. That's such a good question. Um, you know, I love the late and great Wade Clark Roof had that great um, chapter. I'm not sure what edit collection it was. And I think it yeah, was, it was the wonderful. The barbecue yes, one. The barbecue. Yeah. Loved it. Yes. And I, oh, I loved it. all my religions in America classes, you know, or in, so in that case, how how the pig yeah. is like sacra is sacra like a sacramentalism, right? Like That's it's right. and so I I see the pig in Iowa broadband culture, you know, bacon's everywhere. It's even on salads. You have to like say, please hold the bacon on my salad. You know, it's like <laughs> you know, got everything here. I mean, I remember when I first moved here, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm vegetarian. But like, oh, it's just bacon. I'm like, well, but bacon's meat. So bacon's like it's a whole other category here. I, it's like it's like sacred. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, now I'm like, please hold the bacon. Yeah, but um, yes. And so you're right. Food. Um, I'm so glad you picked up on that. And when well, I love food, and I love to eat, and I appreciate, um, you know, you know, I, I just there was so much work done with hands in this book, right? Hands taking care of animals. Hands killing animals, hands, dehiding animals, hands, cutting animals, hands, making casseroles. And so there's so much craft work, in, you know, in this book. And so I definitely tried to get that across, whether we're talking about Corinne Hargrafen, when she's talking about growing up in the early mid 20th century, raising her family, pregnant with twins and food was such a big part of her memory, hot summer, making cold lemonade and in metal pitchers, having capons, which I didn't even know what a capon was. It's like a little chicken, apparently. Yeah. It's like a little poultry. Like I didn't yeah. even know. And as a vegetarian, I mean, I learned so much about meat. Right. I even learned how to grade meat. So I could, I, I, I was like not officially certified from the USDA guy, but I spent many hours with him. And he's like, you've got this down. So I got <laughs> choice in crime now, like with my you know, blindfolded. <laughs> but, you know, I definitely wanted to get across, um, the care that people take with their hands, whether it's making food for a parish hall or, you know, preparing an animal. So yes, food ways are huge. And, you know, every time uh, one of my interlocutors invited me into their homes, they would always make me food and it was always delicious. And it was always homemade. And it was always way better than I would have made because I am not a very good cook. So <laughs> my, my spouse is the cook, but yeah. So food ways are really important. And going back to your original question about pork, there's this, um, there's this, uh, relationality, if you will, between humans and animals and the consumption of animals and the killing of animals and animals. And, you know, so whether they're the, the Latino Knights of Columbus at um, St. Joseph, the worker, you know, selling carnitas to raise money for the Knights of Columbus, you know, um, 
you know, pork that came that they bought at a discount because they work at Tyson, you know, so it's all interconnected around pigs and corn and you, you can't get away from it. And especially, you know, the left. So this is a, a minority majority parish as many rural parishes are Latino majority. Um, yeah, pork is pork is huge. And, you know, I'm thinking of our colleagues, beautiful Alyssa Maldonado Estrada's book, beautiful book, Lifeblood of the Parish. I was yeah. thinking about her beautiful book the other day and her title. In a lot of ways, you know, these meatpacking plots are the lifeblood. They're the lifebloods of these communities. You know, they're disgusting and they're awful. They pollute the earth and the air, but they're providing for these families and they're literally keeping alive these parishes. And so how do we reckon with this? You know, yeah, that that's an amazing, right? This this thread of blood. Yes, right? blood, blood everywhere. And it just, you know, uh, you don't yeah. have to you don't have to self-identify as Catholic, which I do, but just like, ooh, it's just everywhere. Right. There's blood on the floor. There's blood on their clothes. And and obviously all of that is sanitized when you get or for me anyway, in my mind, I get the carnitas, I get the pozole and uh, you mentioned other foods and I'm going, yeah, I'm ready for that. That's I mean, it was mouthwatering and previous to page previous. You just talked about the slaughter. And I was like, see, how did my mind do that? How did I sanitize that, right? How could I do that? People, I can totally see that people would have read the first part of that chapter, put it away and go, I'm done. I'm done. I, I'm never eating pork <laughs> again. But, and then I read the rest of it going, ooh, I, I, yeah, I haven't had that in a while. I wonder how that would taste at the, at the parish hall. That sounds great. You know, it's just, it's yeah. odd how that works. I mean, it's not odd, but it's, it's so yeah. deeply, again, cultural. Right. But yes, the lifeblood of a parish, the lifeblood of these industries and how because of their such precarious economic situations, this is the job that they have. And this is a job that they're going to keep. Right. Right. It doesn't almost it doesn't matter what how awful it is, because they they're self-aware. Am I right? They know how bad it is. And they're not, they're not kidding themselves. This is not some kind of mass delusion theory where it's like, they don't really understand what they're doing. Oh, they completely understand what they're doing. All right. Uh, You bring meatpacking alive. Okay. You really do. You Mm -hmm. can feel it. You can smell it in your descriptions and how these workers, uh, African, Asian, Latino, Latina, all, they all want respect for their work. Right. And, And that's, that obviously has a very, uh, the trajectory of that is so long. And it was what I was thinking as when you were writing, I was thinking about factories in the field, right? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about Carrie McWilliams and I was thinking about the long historiography yes. and, and literature about dignity, yeah. right? That they just want dignity yes. for the field work, for the factory work, right? Yes. They don't want sympathy, right? They don't, they don't want, they don't want to be patronized, right? And you, and you, 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 you hinted at that with the chaplaincy kind of a thing that there's this, I don't even know what to say it, this kind of evangelical paternalism. Yeah. Right. That, that that just, I don't know where that comes from, but I mean, that's, that's there. Um, Tell us about how you view this industry now and these workers. Yeah. After your work has been over, right? I mean, um, it's a very What's it like? What's it like after you've, you've accomplished all of this and you just kind of had to let it go? That's a really, really, really good question. Um, I love how you teased out. Um, every worker told me, I don't, I don't want to you or anyone to feel sorry for me because I work hard and I know very few people could do this job so that there's an awareness there that this is like a really hard freaking job. I, I'll keep my language clean here, but um, I mean, there is a pride and, and, and I, I really came away with that. And I had such a deep respect by the end of the intensive week at Iowa premium beef. I actually got used to the packing plan. It was weird. I, I found myself understanding how you could go into work and have a cognitive dissonance because I got used to the blood and the smells and the sounds. I really, even by the end of the week, I'm like, okay, I, I, I can get, how you can bracket this and how you could do your job, go home and shower, take like an hour long shower to get rid of the smell, but it never goes away. Uh, and then take care of your family. I could really understand that pride. And 
I write about this. So what's next? And so, um, as you, you had asked me earlier about theory. So I've, I've really taken the approach that my books, I want to be crossover books. I really want them to be readable. I don't want them to be jargony and bogged down in theory. I have a lot of problems with ethnographies that do that, to be honest with you. And so I have decided. Amen, sister. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that because I'm like, really, I, I do know theory. I just I care more about Reina and Rosa than I do Bourdieu, you know? You know what? I think so, we're, we're probably been twins in a different life, you know, because it's so. like, I just want people to say, talk, speak their stories Yes. because nobody ever asks them. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, it's probably the worst job interview response, but that's mm-hmm. what I always say, or whenever I'm interviewed, right? And it's like, I just want people who've never been asked to speak their stories, Absolutely. to tell their story. That's it. You know, uh, and it's, and, well, how do you contextualize? How do you do this? How do you do that? I'm going, uh, I don't, right? I mean, I, I can, I can make it fit somewhere, but I, they're not used to this. They're not used to having their stories told, to having their work respected. Okay? Yes. They're, they're often viewed as objects of pity, to be honest, you know, and it's like, oh, poor, poor people. They can't yeah. get anything else. Uh, I'm sure as soon as they can, they will move out of that awful business. But, but yes. you really, really paint a different picture, right? Yes. You paint a different picture. And um, so now that after, after the work is over, what's your, what are you thinking in terms of what you saw? I mean, have you had a time to process yeah. what you went through? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, some other folks have asked me about this. I think I had a little bit of PTSD after the field work because I was having nightmares of blood and of cows crying and pigs feeling, and I would wake up sweating and I'm like, okay, is this menopause or is this like, I don't know what is going on because that's kind of going on too. And I'm like, what is going on? You know? So I, uh, it took a while to like, to write, I wrote the, the, the chapters around the, the chapters where I really take you through the packing plants. But once I started writing those, it just flowed. I literally couldn't stop writing. It just came out. And I, and I, and so, um, I also decided I have a forthcoming piece and an edited volume about the exist. So exit is a bunch of existentialist phenomenological anthropologies. That's where I kind of go on, go on with the theory a little bit mm-hmm. and, and like talking about how I felt in my relationality with animals and, you know, the guilt and all the affect that I felt, mm-hmm. you know, so that's probably my more theoretical work, but yeah. um, where I am now thinking about the industry, you know, my I have three kids, you know, they all eat meat. We're, we, I mean, you know, I don't want to shame anyone for eating meat. I prepare meat for my kids. I'm one of those vegetarians that I'm pretty inclusive. I'm a pretty inclusive person. So I'm like, let's, if we buy meat, let's buy, let's try to buy responsibly source meat. Let's, you know, let's eat it all. Let's not waste. Um, I would love to see the industry shrink. I mean, I think that people are always going to eat meat. I mean, I know like crickets and grasshoppers are the next new protein. I mean, I eat a lot of pea powder, pea protein powder. You know, I know there's a lot of like fake meats out there, you know, the impossible burgers and all that. Um, but I think, people are still going to want to eat meat. I just think that the, the scale that we see at some of these plants, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 killed a day, that doesn't seem ethical to me. And there is a lot of waste in the pack in, in, in the industry. I would love to see less waste, more accountability on these um, to literally clean up because you'll see you drive into a Tumwa or Marshalltown and you'll spell, you'll smell shit not to be crass, but it's in these open air pits. That's what greets you when you drive into these towns. Marshalltown, the plant is literally in the center of a community, like a half block away, little kids are running around barefoot. It's, it's really disgusting. And so these plants need to be held more accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, They need, I think there needs to be greater checks into the water quality because the water quality in Iowa is just terrible. My family and I kayak and we have gotten rashes, you know, we, we pretty much don't kayak south of a particular area anymore mm-hmm. because the waterways are so polluted with fertilizer from yeah. big ag or yeah. just the waste that's mm-hmm. been treated, but not treated enough. And so I think that we need more regulations, mm-hmm. which we saw were very much relaxed under our last president. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. But I, would say, I think we need more regulations. We need, um, the EPA to come in and, and to really yeah. 
but I, I, I mean, I have, I have my eyes wide open with this Arlene and I, I don't think we'll see, you know, meat consumption going away, but mm. I keep thinking, how can it be more responsible and how, how can we see unions coming back? Because, yeah. you know, this yeah. is a right to work state, uh, workers do make a high salary comparatively, mm-hmm. but, um, it's such a high risk job, you know, and I really, I would really like to see unions take hold. Um, in these plants. Well, you did make mention of that. Just to, to backtrack a little, uh, you, you uh, set the stage, in, as it were, stating that the, when these plants used to be in larger cities, and, and obviously yes. the, the one that we all know is Chicago, right? Uh, the, 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 what is it, the hog butcher of the world or whatever that was called. Um, yeah. And they moved, obviously because of unionization, right to work laws, cheaper. It's just cheaper, right? I mean, let's just be honest. They were looking for bigger profits and it was cheaper and often, sadly, expendable workforce, you know, very much the factory in the field, right? If if we can't, you know, if you want to leave, fine, there'll be a hundred other people who want this job. So essentially they they don't need that, right? Which is unfortunate. Um, You know, I, that's exactly what I thought you were going to say about the PTSD. I don't know how you could get through this without that because it almost felt like a war zone. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. And yeah. it was like, yes. it was just amazing. And yes, there's no doubt in my mind that religion, you know, it serves as a coping mechanism absolutely for for this awful work, but necessary. You know, you know what I mean? It's just kind of a weird thing, a paradox, right? It's awful, but necessary. And not just for meat consumers like myself, for these workers. Right? Exactly. For them to kind of lift themselves out of some out of this horrible poverty that they find themselves in to try and make a better life the stories that you told in the book about where they were fleeing from um the things that they had to go through just to get here yeah simply amazing simply yeah. amazing yeah. um tried a lot doing this research it was um yeah. i have never felt my white privilege more acutely you know and i have to say you know if you're, if you're struggling with, um, anyone who, who doesn't think they have white privilege is why it needs to do field work with migrants, because there's no way you can get around your privilege. And so it was incredibly humbling, um, to do this work. Yeah. Amazing. Grounded. Yeah. We are discussing the phenomenal book, Meat Packing America, how migration work and faith unite and divide the heartland with Dr. Christy Nabin Warren, University of Iowa. You know, one of your many observations about religion is that it can be found in this work through chaplaincies. We talked about uh, the, the beef, the cattle uh, processing plant, the beef does not have a chaplain, if I remember correctly. Um, and obviously we talked about it already, what they wear on the line, their silent prayers. But you also say, which is really interesting, that institutional religion, for lack of a better word, is on the wane, which is all of the statistics kind of tell us that is true. And what we're measure that by, obviously, is church going, right? Right. for lack of a better word, self-identification, people who self-identify as something else. But people find religion where they spend the bulk of their time, which is at work, right? Is that a good thing? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... That's a good question. Um, I, I don't know how to answer that. That's such a good question. Um, I think that, that people are drawn to places where they can get outside of themselves and they can have certain feelings and affect of specialness to, to use and Taves and Tav's language. Right. And so I didn't want to say that a meatpacking plant with all the noises and blood was a church. And I don't think none of my interlocutors would have said that this is church for them, that it's replacing, but it's a place for them to live, to basically, you know, bring in their faith, to get through their shift so they can make it home for the interlocutors. I interviewed many of them are pretty faithful going churchgoers, right? But many of them used to go to church, but they're just so exhausted, you know, from the week, some of them work on Sundays, right? But some of them Sundays, like the only day they don't have to go in. So they skip mass because they're just tired and they want to sleep in, you know? So I do think that institutional faith and church going 
that many of my, I'd say the majority of my interlocutors, church going habits and place, the church as a place figures very prominently in their identity and their memories. But whether or not they're passing that down to their kids remains to be seen. Now the Pentecostal, the Africans who are more evangelical and Pentecostal and the Jehovah's Witnesses I interviewed, for them, going to kingdoms, you know, um, kingdom hall or, you know, or church is very important, you know? Um, but for many of the Catholics, there was more like, well, I go when I can, or father understands if I miss, you know, and, and father Joseph would have taken, you know, um, the host and wine to their homes. You know, he makes, he did a lot of home visits. And so I think institutional religion, quote unquote, is still important for so many folks, even when they don't go to church. And so that's, Mm -hmm. I think, a problem with a lot of these polls, because even when church attendance is in decline, church as a concept in a place still remains very important for for so many people. And so I think that that we always need to keep that in mind. I tell you, I don't know. I'm kind of divided about whether it's good or not. Because I think work is work is so overwhelming, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it just the drive for work is so overwhelming. And yeah. it's not in the questions, um, but now that we can talk about it, yeah. this was done before, quote unquote, the great resignation. Right. And you spend your last part of your chapter talking about how or, or towards the end of the book, uh, COVID. Yeah. Right. And, and it yeah. just starting probably just as, as you were finishing up, you know, uh-huh. and and. Uh, getting this thing to go into press, but yeah. that that idea that they left, people just because they were scared. I mean that that COVID hit these plants so yeah. horrendously, they yeah. had to shut down. Um, yeah. And you, all of that's in the book. Um, I just don't know. I don't. I mean, work yeah. is so. You know, let's use that other really. Work is can be sacred. But often it's very profane, often it's very mundane, often it's draining and it right. saps you of of your time yep. and it saps you of your energy. Right. And yep. so what you're supposed to be focused on, if you will, right, that the whole idea of rest, just mm. something just to rest yes. uh, is is not there anymore. Right? right. That you're working all the time. You're doing stuff all the time. You know, the, 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 the what is it? The cult of busyness. Yes. Right. I can't do this. I'm busy. Right. And to have religion kind of sacralize that, right, to kind of have chaplains and folks in these plants to Mm -hmm. to, kind of have it all be okay. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, this is okay. It's fine. It'll be okay because we have this working out here. Right. I don't I don't know. I don't don't know how good or bad that is. I mean, it's just um, Mm -hmm. it seems like replacing one for the other in a way. And I know it's not replacing. And I know that Pentecostals have to go to church and. Jehovah Witness have to go to Kingdom Hall. They have to kind of, uh, that idea of going to a place, yeah. of separating yourself from work is still there. Yes. It's just so, um, I don't know. It, 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 to me, it's disturbing. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. disturbing that, that, uh, that you can't have one, one sacred place anymore or you can't have one sacred moment anymore without thinking about how busy you are. It's tough. I, I really agree with you, Arlene. I mean, I... Yeah, I, I, I really agree with you. And I, I, I try to, I think I really wanted to problematize this whole new, new religion in the workplace, this religion of efficiency. And instead of calling workers, workers or employees, they call them family. Really? Are they family? I mean, these are just no (laughs) euphemisms, right. To make what's a bloody, like, you know, these individuals are fungible commodities, like yes. the animals that are harvested, right? right? You make, like you said earlier, they can be easily replaced by a new refugee who's waiting mm-hmm. in line to get the job, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. conclude with Reina, Reina's yeah. story. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell the audience what was so compelling about her story for you? I, I mean, I know what it is, but, you know, yeah. if you could end, if you could end this what I think has been a great talk, really, really good talk. And thank you again for, for joining us. Um, what is so compelling about her story for you? Yeah, well, I really got to, first of all, um, Reina is not her real name. As you know, most of the refugees, I, I changed their names or they would give me a name they wanted to be called um, because she, um, she happens to not be documented. And so I wanted to protect her identity. So I got to know her really well because she lives fairly close to me and I know her family and I know her kids. And 
I, um, I just, you know, I drove her kids a lot to their music lessons. It, it didn't, it kind of started out, you know, I do a lot of work locally with Catholic worker house and my Catholic worker friends had told me, Oh, this, this woman needs some extra help because her husband was supporting. I said, sure. You know? And so I got to know her and she's one of the few Guatemalans I got to know. Well, most of the Latinos I interviewed were Mexicanos. And so, you know, when we looked at, when we look at the postville, ice raids back in 2008, you know, I sort of mentioned it in the book, yes, but it's yes. not, um, most of the, those men and women deported were Guatemalans. Most, um, most of the Latinos who work in the plants today that where I went are, are Mexican descent. And so I wanted to include her because she's Guatemalan and she's not, she's also part of the broadband meat industry. So I, th- I thought a way to start was, you know, Rosa, um, who did end up getting a job in the meatpacking plant. I didn't add that in the book, but, you know, coming over to the cornfields in Iowa. So we start with corn. We move our way through corn, which feeds the hogs and the cattle. And then uh, Reina works at McDonald's, right? And so we have literally the tail end, you know, we have like the animal as, you know, being cooked and served. That's what she does. So I kind of yeah. wanted to take the reader from the corn to the cooked hamburger. And, um, I really wanted to get across. I thought, I think Reina's story is so palpable because, you know, she really misses, she longs for Santa Eulalia. You know, she longs for Western Guatemala. She longs to be home, but she had to leave home. Her family was starving. They were picking up cardamom pods to try to sell for a living, wow. you know, wow. and NAFTA, I mean, NAFTA is a specter in a lot of this, right? You know, so yeah. a lot of these refugees coming from the Northern Triangle had been small farmers. Well, they were put out of business because of NAFTA. And then now they're coming over and they're working for some segment of big ag, you know, whether they're feeding animals, castrating animals or killing animals or packaging them. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to show that one of the messages that I think her story really drives home is that the vast majority of these refugees miss home. And it's, it's been a hard journey making homes here in the Midwest because they miss home. Many of their family members are still home. They send remittances home. They send a large portion of what they make home, you know, like the lines at Walmart in any small town in rural, you'll see lines on a Saturday and a Friday. Yeah. You know? yeah. I wanted to introduce the fact that, you know, she's a, she's a wonderful mother, you know, her husband was deported and she was a single mom. She's not fluent. She's neither fluent in Spanish nor English. Right. And right. So right Spanish right. was sort of our, and I'm not a hundred percent fluent. I'm like maybe close to 80, you know? And so her sons would be trans, they would help us with each yeah. other because Ketua, yeah, Kanjobal yeah, would inflect her Spanish mm-hmm. and English would inflect mine. And so <laughs> I think she and I, we really, we became friends and we really tried to understand each other as mothers mm-hmm. and as mothers trying to do our best for our kids. And I really just wanted to, you know, to show that these women in this case are, are, are just beautiful people who will do anything for their children. And I, I thought about like, what would I have done? Yes. I would have crossed the border. I don't know if I would have registered. And so it got me thinking about, cause you know, we hear a lot of stories like, I know from my both sides of my family, I'll hear, well, you know, but our relatives came over the right way or the legal way. I'm like, actually, when you really do some digging, I don't know about that. I think some <laughs> of them slipped through and I think that we've really romanticized this, right? And we've yeah. really watched it. Yeah. And so I was hoping to end the story, you know, and, and by the way, her husband, she has been reunited with her husband. Fantastic. He applied for his work visa. Right. Great. And great. they are expecting another child and they're in a bigger apartment. So things wow. are going well for them. Good. She's good. Good. Hours at McDonald's. And so, um, I've, I've kept in touch, not with all of my interlocutors, but some of most of my primary ones. So I wanted to end on a hopeful note, but also to, for the reader to take pause, like, okay, what can we do to amplify the experience of refugees? What can we do? Do we give money to agencies? Do we, I mean, cause if we eat less meat, this is the conundrum, right? If we eat less meat, then there will be fewer jobs for these yeah. folks, but maybe there'll be better jobs. Maybe there'll be better paying jobs. And so I just wanted the reader to come away with feeling a sense of connection with refugees who maybe felt really foreign quote unquote before. That was really the main thrust of the book to get empathy. Right, right. Yeah, I, I clearly, clearly that was there. I mean, you, you definitely care for these people. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that that just 
leapt off every page. It really did. It was like, that's what I mean about good ethnography, right? I mean, there is that whole critical distance idea and whatever, right? But it's like, really, you're, you're insinuating yourself into their life, right. right? And it's like, they don't need you. They don't need to talk to you, right? They don't need to, it's their stories, right? They don't need to share anything with you, right? right. I mean, you, yep. you're, you don't live their life, you know, therefore, by the grace, right? You don't live their life, okay? That's and that's it's like, okay, uh, but my, my grandfather did, not too much, right? But he was a butcher. He was a meat cutter uh, in a non-union shop, right? And so he knew what that was like, right? And another thing is, you know, we, I don't remember it from the book, but this is such harsh work on the body, right? Yeah. Yes. That these folks are not going to retire at 65 and go to their summer home, right? right. I mean, they're, they're not going to sap uh, again, this mythology and these these damaging narratives of immigration and immigrants who who just suck all of these services dry. And it's like they're not going to retire at 65 perfectly embodied to go off and live in Florida. Right. That's the snowbirds. Great. They're That's going great. to be they're They're going to have arthritis. Yep. They're going to. With, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be a very, very harsh and difficult physical life for them when That's they right. do retire. Uh, if they get to retire at 65, they may have to retire earlier, right? If, right. if we look at any of the, the statistics about movers, construction workers, truck drivers, uh, meatpacking work, meat yep. workers, uh, agricultural workers, you know, they don't, they're not like us, That's you know? Right. We're, we're, we, you know, we don't choose 65 Professor Emerita, and then I get to write what I want right for the, uh, until I, you know, go to the great beyond or whatever. So it's like, it's, it's, it's just so refreshing yeah. to see someone insinuate themselves into their lives as you did. And I don't use insinuate in a negative way, but no. just kind of live aside them for as long as you did. How long did you do this work? You know, it wasn't like consistent, but it was a yeah. little over six years. Yeah, you know? see that, that's it, but that's how you have to do it. Right. Yeah. A little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, yeah. and then longitudinally to see like what's happening here. That's right? right. It's yeah. just, it's, it's amazing. It really is. It's, it's something. Uh -huh. And, and you know, the, the, the Reina story brought something to mind and we'll close with this. The idea of like, uh, I interviewed somebody recently and he talked about Brazilian immigrants mm -hmm. and how they long to return. This kind of myth of return. They are yeah. convinced that they're going to return one day and they miss it so much and that because life is so harsh uh, through even through all these networks, the jobs that they have to get uh, the places where they have to go throughout the United States just to make a living, the housing situation, the healthcare situation, everything is stacked against these folks. Let's just be honest, right? Did you get that sense with any of them? Do they have that desire to go back home or are they making their home in Iowa? Uh, I think the majority I talked with have really have made their home. They have children. Some have grandchildren. Now they're, they're rooted now they're rooted and they, they, there's a longing though. Um, uh, there's, um, Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on our colleague's name, migrant melancholia. Um, Oh my goodness. I have the beautiful book in my mind. So, Oh my goodness. I'm blanking right now. I'm so sorry. Um, That's okay. Not my term, one of our Latina colleagues. Uh, right. I'm blanking right now. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I think that like with Reina, she wanted to go home. Well, her husband was there. Right. He was sick with nostalgia and longing. But now that he's here, you know, um, I think that most of the folks I talked with want to be here. They and, and because they also see the opportunities for their kids. And if they do this work, their children won't have to. And you were right. Going back to one of your points earlier, none of the meatpacking plant workers I, I interviewed want their kids to work there. Maybe if they're the CEO, but not, they don't want them to be line workers because they know that it tears your body up. They know that, it, you know, it just messes you up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Without question, without question. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the first person in a couple of generations, several generations that didn't have to work with her hands, uh, you know, perfect. and it's like, that's, that's what they want to say. Right. That's what they want the children. That's that's the that's the goal. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the hope is that you don't work this way. You will not work with your hands. You're going to sit in an office. You're going to do something else. 
Yes. And that that's what that is a prime a primal drive. Yes. To, to to just to put up with it. Yeah. Right? If if you will. Yes. What a fantastic talk. Um Meatpacking America, how migration, work and faith unite and divide the heartland by Dr. Christy Napan Warren. Uh, from the University of Iowa, and this is published by the University of North Carolina Press. If I didn't mention that, fantastic press. Thank you, Christy, so much for this. Uh, yeah. I probably owe you a bourbon somewhere down the line. Oh, that'd be great. So, ne- next AAR that we're in person. Maybe next <laughs> that we can do this. That, that that's that's free for us to travel. Uh, I got right. you. I got you. Uh, all fa- all fashions on me. Hasta pronto. We'll do it soon. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, it. Arlene. Have okay. a great day. Okay. okay. Bye bye. Bye-bye.